Hello, friends, and welcome to Sides Podcast. I'm Paul T. Carney, and today's guest is Justin Magnuson. Uh, Justin is a massage therapist who works at Apex Massage. He is the past Kentucky chapter president of the American Massage Therapy Association. He is also a founder of the Before I Die Festival, a festival that's based around all sorts of conversations on death and dying. And he is also at the U of L Institute for Sustainable Health and Optimal Aging. Welcome to Justin Magnuson. Um, so let's start back. We won't go all the way back, but you're you're are you you're from Louisville originally? I, I grew up across the river in Sellersburg. Okay. So it's about seven miles north. Mm-hmm. Eight miles north, which thirty years ago was not a bedroom community of Louisville. It was right. it was the, the sticks, and it, it might as well have been a hundred miles away when you're fifteen and don't have a car. Yeah. Did you get so it was just sort of the the distant city? So I had a cousin who grew up in well, my my aunt and her family lived in Germantown, actually mm-hmm. not far from where I live now. Mm-hmm. And so, like when we would come to the city, like that was. Like I just love, like I love the idea that there were sidewalks, <laughs> you know, and we could ride our bikes to the comic book store or ride our bikes to the video store. Yeah. Um, you know, when, where I grew up, you know, if you rode your bike to the video store, it was a 30 minute ride on country roads. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so the idea that we could walk somewhere or be, fr- you know, be kind of free yeah. was, it, it, well, <clears throat> free in the city and free in the country are two different things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, when I was a kid, like my cousin was a little older and so that was like, that was like heaven to me is to come to the city and like, you know, just roam. Yeah. My wife and I both grew up out in the country. She's, she was from Ohio. I'm from Louisiana. Um, but where she grew up, you know, it's classic sort of, this was all turned into farmland by Germans. So the, you know, roads are all straight and you know, the ditches are all tended. And the first time she came to Louisiana, I mean, she won. She noticed the almost complete absence of sidewalks, even in town, like the small town that I live near. But then when we got out to the country, like, you know, roads and fields just all kind of drifted together. And, you know, curbs were the norm as opposed to straight lines. And it, it kind of freaked her out. But we were both talking about that whole thing, though, when you first come to the to the city and spend time with the city. It's like everything when you're a kid, everything seems so organized. You know, it's like, wow, somebody somebody thought about this and then the longer you live in the city you realize like not enough <laughs> they thought some about it yeah have you ever been to boston no never have uh-huh. and boston is like this crazy like you pass your you pass your destination and you're like well i'll just take the next right and take the next right and take the next right and basically circle around the block mm-hmm. and if you take the next right you may wind up somewhere totally you know it's like all on angles mm-hmm. and, and like these really crazy there's like no grid at all <laughs> and and so like they joke that and i don't know if they're serious or not but it was like all basically sheep trails and mm-hmm. you know they were like well here well this is where the sheep went or this is where the animals went so right, we'll just right. make a road this direction it's already there all right so grew up in sellersburg mm-hmm. uh college so w- went to high school and in, in sellersburg mm-hmm. um very quickly was just like this is not my scene mm-hmm. and as soon as i could get across the river so this is mid 90s um little punk rock was like in its kind of in its second heyday mm-hmm. so they were having like six and seven hundred kids coming out to these shows and just you know it was kind of bedlam yeah so mm-hmm. that was the first time i saw a punk rock show in louisville i was like i don't know what that is but i want it <laughs> <laughs> and and so i my senior year 
basically I walked into the assistant principal's office and like two weeks after the deadline to graduate early. And I was just like, I want to graduate early. And he says, well, you're, you're two weeks too late. And I said, look, let's just be honest. I'm sick of you. You're sick of me. Let, let, let's, let's strike a deal. Mm-hmm. And so I graduated early in 94 um, and started working at UPS mm-hmm. and I was working a couple of jobs. And so it was funny, like six months after graduation or six months after I officially graduated, I went to my, I walked in May mm-hmm. and I, you know, I'd had six months under my belt of like living out in the world and I just was in such a different place. So that summer was a lot of fun. Like that summer of like, after like my official high school graduation, I went to a lot of shows, mm-hmm. um, hung out with, you know, I started making friends outside of school, played in a band and then started going to IUS that fall to study journalism. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I remember my first semester, my professor, Professor Sinclair was like, so journalism is dying. Print journalism is going to be dead. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, and he starts talking about just paper production and, and how paper production and ad revenue at that time in 95 was on the decline. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I thought he was crazy. You know, I didn't see the, you know, I, that was the first time I got an email account was in 95. Right, right. And so I got my email account, you know, and I mean, the World Wide Web was still kind of like a warehouse that you just kind of had to sift through. But, but he, I mean, he was very prescient. I mean, he saw the future mm-hmm. and I was going to school. And so this is in 95, I could work 50 hours a week and go to school, which was a horrible idea, but I was able to pay every semester. Right. I, could, I could pay the semester off. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's crazy that one well, of these days, it seems it, it, almost impossible. Minimum, you know, just above minimum wage working at UPS, right. just, just above minimum wage. And I was able to pay off college every semester. Mm-hmm. So I went to school until 97 and I just basically was like, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I met a professional massage therapist and I said, you get paid for this. And she was like, yes. And I was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm sold. <laughs> I never had a professional massage. I grew up rubbing feet and rubbing backs. Right, right. And, and I dropped out of school and went to massage <clears> school <throat> and that summer or that summer in 97. Hmm. And I kind of consider it my quarter life crisis. I was living pretty rough, living pretty hard, um, kind of wild. Mm-hmm. Uh, started going to massage school. That fall, I started t- taking yoga classes mm-hmm. and I would stop drinking on Friday nights about one or two so I could be sober to drive home around four to get up to go you know, go to yoga at nine and so you had a real disciplined practice i had a real yeah. disciplined practice yeah. and but it really like it really started shifting what i was doing mm-hmm. so i had that first semester under my belt um i was a terrible massage therapist initially eventually initially saying i was terrible then makes that means that i'm not terrible now but maybe <laughs> i'm not quite as terrible but i was a terrible massage therapist in the beginning and i started working at the jewish community center because you didn't have to be licensed mm-hmm. that following january mm-hmm. And I started studying Kung Fu, like literally right down the street at the school for the blind. Mm-hmm. One of our massage school teachers taught Wing Chun Kung Fu. Mm-hmm. And so I started going to Kung Fu classes twice a week and doing yoga and started making a new set of friends and started m- making friends here in Louisville and really just started building my community here. Mm-hmm. God, it's been, it's been 20 years now. And so really just trying to find you know the, the way back to myself or the mm-hmm. way you know just trying to be comfortable in the world mm-hmm. and so that was gosh it's been 20 years and then went tried to go back to school 
Um, it's, I mean, it's a long, boring story. Eventually, I went back and, when I was 28 and, and finished my undergrad and then went to master's, got my master's in communication at UofL. Mm-hmm. So you finished out the, the journalism degree undergrad? or Well, no. So when I came back, that's a long, boring story. But basically, I, got, I was in liberal studies. Mm-hmm. And in liberal studies, you have to have two areas of concentration and a minor. Mm-hmm. And so it worked out that my areas of concentration being psychology and biology and my minor was in communication. Mm-hmm. So basically I, I took my, my, my journalism background and dovetailed that into the communication minor and then took some communication classes. Right. And so it worked out that, and I got really interested in health communication. Mm-hmm. I was, I was in a, a health communication class and basically it clicked. It's like the way we communicate about health dramatically or can dramatically impact a patient, their family, and, and, and even the caregivers mm-hmm. and even the healthcare system. So that was like the first light bulb that went off in my head. And it took me back to being my, I was my grandmother's healthcare surrogate when I was 25. Mm-hmm. So if you look at between 20, when I was dropped out of school and went to massage school and then coming back to college at 28, at 25, my grandmother had a health crisis and I was her closest kin and I became her healthcare surrogate. Mm-hmm. And so I navigated the healthcare system for the last five weeks of her life and just got a crash course and, wow. and, and how we discuss things interpersonally, sure, sure. Um, how we discuss things with healthcare professionals, uh, just how, all of that really just gave, you know, gave me a really deep look at, you know, the role communication plays and, mm-hmm. and, and how we make decisions and, and how we support each other mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. And, and a lot of times when I say this, it, it, it means how we don't do it right, or right, don't right. do it well. And that really, that shaped, and, and I joke is Dr. Wa- Dr. Walker, Dr. Candy Walker at UofL. Mm-hmm. I joke that she ruined my life because I had a track that I was, that I think I was on. And, right. then, and then in that moment, like in that class, like I, when I heard that, I was like, yeah, like th- that, that for me is true. And that is something that mm-hmm. I can dive into that I want to learn more about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that, and I don't know if that makes any sense. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I kind of encourage people not to follow epiphanies. Um, <laughs> you know, to, for, you know, if people say I have an epiphany, it's like, well, you might want to check it out for a while. And I did, I checked it out for a while and, and it kept on coming up true. And, and, and the more I learn about like, or, you know, as a massage therapist, you know, the way we communicate with our mm-hmm. clients mm-hmm. about their pain or about what's going on can dramatically, cha- you know, help or hurt them. So, I mean, not everybody's the same, but I mean, I come in, I have clients that come in and say, you know, clients have, you know, their other therapists have said stuff to them that hurts them mm-hmm. and I see mm-hmm. it or, you know, vice versa. And, and, and nobody ever tells you, you know, somebody said something to me and that really helped me because I don't know if we're that that aware and actually i don't know if we're that aware when people hurt us with their 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 language right i was talking to some other i can't remember who it was right now another therapist and we were talking about sort of the misinformation trail i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that massage therapists tell clients and and mostly meaning well i think but sometimes the stray word about Oh, I think you have this, or I think this is effective. You know, all the, all the little things, the nuggets you can plant, and people forget that besides coming for <clears throat> for therapy or treatment, they're coming for information. So, like the the client's or the patient's open mind is just right there, and you know things stick. Or you think of something that's just like classic massage tropes. Um, you know, like 
you must drink water immediately after a session. Who knows where that, you know, started, but it's a small piece of information that doesn't really do any harm, but it just maintains and maintains and maintains. Well, well, I I would argue that it does do harm or it can do harm. And I had a client who came in one time, it's been in the last six months and she came in and she was like, you know, I had a headache after the last time you worked on me. You know, I must have not drank enough water afterwards. Mm-hmm. And, and I had stopped her and I was like, so I can't say unequivocally that that's not true. But let's just consider that either you got a head, you, you may have just got a headache just just by, yeah. or I did something wrong. Like, like I used too much pressure mm-hmm. or I did something that was uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, I don't think that's it. And that's like, it, 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 none of that may be true. Right. But let's just consider that right. if anything's ever too painful, or, you know, your positions, you know, mm-hmm. I started going down this list of like, you know, let's just not blame it on you not right. drinking enough water. Right. That's a good point. So rather than just fixate, or no, I shouldn't say fixate, but like lock on to something that may be wrong, may not be the whole picture, but they'll stop looking or they'll stop considering it because they go, oh, it was the water. And all of those things may be true or not true. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, it's just impossible to say. Yeah. But for them not to put at least some responsibility on, or for me to shift all the responsibility onto them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. would be, t- and, and I hear, and I hear, I've heard therapists say that, Oh, well, you know, you know, because my last therapist told me I probably didn't drink enough water. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, thankfully it's just a headache. Right. And, and, and I'm saying that in air quotes, cause mm-hmm. it could be a, a very massive headache, but mm-hmm. you know, there's so many things. And the headache could actually be like a sign of something else entirely that they really need to address, but Oh, it's just not enough water. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And, you know, and, and I think, well, this goes back to one of my big things with what massage school gave me was it mm-hmm. started, and I, and, I, and I think I said this in the beginning, kind of gave me a path back to myself mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, you know, my body does, like, I do need to relate to my body and I do need to develop a relationship to it. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm in my 40s, you know, there's these moments where it's like, oh, shit, is this, um, is this just what it feels like to live in a 40 year old body or is this some kind of disease process I need to worry about? Right. Cause nobody, I'm an N of one, you know, right. I'm, I'm a subject of one. Mm-hmm. So I can only look at my own experience and go, Oh, this is what it feels like to mm-hmm. be in this body on this day. And my joints hurt. Yeah. And it's manageable. And is it going to change? Is it going to mm-hmm. get better or worse <laughs> or stay the same? <laughs> That's like every morning when I wake up these days, is this <clears throat> just this new normal? Okay. Yeah. But yeah, you don't you don't know how to what should I be worried? Should I should I pursue more information? Is it just because I'm getting older? I, so, so, All that, yeah. yeah so, so a friend of mine and I meet on Friday mornings, um, and we walk in a park. We walk in a nature center, mm-hmm. and we've been doing it since last fall. Mm-hmm. And so we've gone two two and a half seasons now. And there was a point back. It was it was one of the days we had snow, mm-hmm. and it was cold, mm-hmm. and you know, we're walking and we're walking about 45 minutes and I was like, okay, so at this point, I don't know enough about my body to say, this is just what it was like to be cold or this is the onset of frostbite. <laughs> and, right, right. and I'm 20 minutes from my car, so I'm, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to lose digits. Right. And, and I feel like that, like a lot of things in our body are like that where it's mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. okay, is this just a little fat passing pain or is this something to be really concerned about? Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I don't know if you can ever develop enough, I don't know, use the word intuitive wisdom or, or mm-hmm. enough, enough mm-hmm. sense of yourself to know, but that, that, that's concerning. 
<laughs> to not knowing yeah, yeah. yeah. i should know this uh, maybe or maybe it's unknowable maybe yeah. you know yeah. you, you always need some i met, I met somebody recently who lost I, I went to pick up their hand and they were missing the end of a ring finger mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i just was like so refresh my memory about this and basically they had went skiing mm-hmm. um, above eight thousand feet their knuckle had swollen and their their wedding ring had cut yeah. off the circulation, and when they took off their glove two days later, the finger was black. Mm. A- and, uh. and and I mean, it was just like, oh wow, yeah, we can like totally check out or, or totally not be aware. Right. And he said it didn't hurt. Mm-hmm. He just said it was like, oh, I took off my glove and my finger was black, and I lost it. In, you know, the, the last inch of my finger, which is you know. Yeah, usually you hear about stuff like that, and it's it's the big adventure story, you know. And then when the last of my huskies died, I had no choice but to trail on. And in the end, I lost a fingertip. And it's like, no, I was skiing, had my wedding ring on. You know, <laughs> so much for the old, you know, this boy's life. A second ago, or twice now, I guess you've said, you know, that that getting involved in massage and then doing the, doing yoga, doing kung fu, kind of led you back. Or how did you say it? It's like the, just like the path back to myself. Back to yourself. Um, one thing I didn't ask about. So you you grew up fairly typical South Indiana kind of. So good, you know, good old fashioned upbringing. So yes, okay. So my parents, I was planned. Mm-hmm. My parents moved into my house that I grew up in mm-hmm. a month before I was born. Mm-hmm. That was built. So I mean, like there was a. There was a timeline. They were working the schedule. Yeah, yeah. they were working the schedule. Um, they were, my mother was going to be a first generation college graduate, mm. worked for the Department of Defense making maps. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, my dad worked at Harvester and was a photographer. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they, had their, they had a plan. Mm-hmm. And then in 1979, my mother was going to graduate. Yeah. And it was in March. And they had a family event. And she decided to go for a horseback ride and didn't come back. And they found my mother bucked off the horse and they rushed her to the hospital and she died in transit. And you were, I was two and a half. You were two and a half. Um, my dad, I have some vague memories of that summer after she died, but not many. And then, and six days after my third birthday in November of 79, mm-hmm. we were in a car accident and my dad broke both hips and oh, wow. I was unconscious and taken to, Norton's children. Mm-hmm. So we were in two different hospitals. Mm-hmm. And so my memories pick my memories start after the car accident. Mm-hmm. And so like, I remember like my, you know, I remember basically waking up in the hospital. I remember my dad being in the hospital. I remember my grandparent living with my grandparents. Mm-hmm. And then my dad had been on one date. He'd known my stepmother mm-hmm. before the accident, but they had been on one date literally the night before and they ended up getting married the following May. It must have been a good date. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's like one of those things where it's like, is it normal? Like, it's not traditional. Right, right. But like, that's my life. You know, that, that's my life. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up um, with, a, with, a, with a stepmother and, and my dad. Mm-hmm. And then my, my half-brother was born a year later. Mm-hmm. And so it's, I don't know if it's normal or not. But what's abnormal about it is I guess both of my parents were at home a lot Mm -hmm. because my dad had to retire from Harvester 
because of the because the of the, because of the yeah. accidents. And so I grew up with both of my parents in the house until I was probably nine or ten. Mm-hmm. And so in in that sense that it wasn't nor you know quote unquote normal. Right, right. You know, it was a stable home. It was, but it was just different because right. You know, and I've talked to my significant I've talked to my significant other about this because both of her parents worked her entire life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just realized that like I had a different perspective. Right. Right. Um, and, and we were also allowed to roam. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, I saw this thing the other day that, you know, it's, it's legal for kids to roam in Utah now. And, yeah. And, the, and, the free range parenting. Yeah. Law. The free, yeah. The, and I was just like, well, that's called the eighties <laughs> <laughs> or, 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 you know, you know, pre 1989, maybe yeah, I, don't, yeah, I, don't, yeah. I don't, I don't know, but it's just what we did. This was what we did, you know, yeah. and it's like when I was, and, and I don't even know if my parents were ever like, don't go past the stop sign. But, you know, I knew that like I had like this little quarter mile radius. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then as we got older, it's like, you know, by the time I was probably nine or 10, you know, I had a bike, you know, we would ride two, two miles. Right. And, and it's sort of like we always intuitively knew when to come back. <laughs> Right. Um, so in that sense, like my, my, my childhood was stable. Right. Um, it was just trying to grow, you know, grow, you know, like I was the only kid I knew until I was in the seventh grade that had a mom who died. Mm-hmm. And and I tried to talk to that person and they did not have it. Like they were just like, well, I don't, I don't want to. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't even know how I knew that their mom. I don't even remember how I learned their mom died. Right. But right. I asked them and they were just like not having it. Yeah. And so, I mean, flashing forward, that, that, that kind of is how I became my grandmother's healthcare surrogate because mm-hmm. my mother died mm-hmm. and then my uncle died. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when it came down to it and my grandpa had already died. So yeah, it's like, but right. when it came down to it, it was me mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and my mother's cousin who she wintered in Florida. And so when did my grandmother get sick? Um, she got sick in the winter when my, when my cousin was in Florida. Mm-hmm. You know, so that kind of fell to me. Right, right. Um, like my cousins, like my step-cousins, I mean, they've been, we've been cousins since I was three. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody really, they knew my grandmother. They knew like my, like my mother's mother. Mm-hmm. But it was not like, it wasn't different. It wasn't like I was the step-cousin that became the step-cousin when I was, you know, 15. It was like. Right. It's, it's like, just kind of the way it always was. Yeah. More or less. It's funny when you say though, and, and I front loaded it with asking the question that way, but that whole idea of a normal upbringing, the whole idea of a normal anything, you know, it's like they say normal is just a statistical point on the scale. Like the, the variations even like, cause your upbringing, it sounds like was in terms of, you know, you had, you had parents, you had extended family, you, you know, grew up in a safe enough environment that, you know, cycling around, <laughs> You know, you you never got abducted by a clown in a white van or anything. Like it was a good, yeah, caring, loving upbringing. Yeah, outside of like some biographical particulars, and I don't mean to re- refer to it clinically, but I mean like things like one's mom dying, you know, or whatever. And the thing, and the thing that gets me is like we don't have ways to talk about right. that. And I'm a 41 year old man, and when I tell people my mother died when I was two they do like this whole like, Oh, I'm so sorry. Right, and, and it's right. like on one hand I get it. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, it's like, it's been 39 years. Right. Um, I, but I don't know how else to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's sort of like if I said my dog died when I was five, people don't go, Oh, I mean, I don't mean to make light of it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, 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 oh, 
spot. Man, that wound is still raw. <laughs> raw. <laughs> and, well, I mean, and, and this kind of plays into my, my current work of, of, like, how do we talk about things and, and mm-hmm. form relationships and, and really be in relationship with all the things that happen in our lives? Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't I don't pretend to have the answer. Right. But it's a really important question to me. Yeah, well and something like that. I mean the question is almost more important. Like really asking the question the right way, there will be more than one answer. Different people will find solutions, but and, and we'll come back to this. Um but sort of it seems like a lot of what is keeping you busy these days is about trying to find the different ways to ask questions, you know, so that people have that as their toolbox. Access information is one thing, but knowing the questions you need specifically to ask. And, and kind of back to the yoga mm-hmm. and, and the massage piece mm-hmm. of how do I process these things that I'm feeling in my body? You know, how do I feel these things? Mm-hmm. How do I, and, and, and segueing into probably meditation is probably another tool mm-hmm. because I think yoga kind of gives you access to it. But then I think meditation also helps to sit with it in a different way mm-hmm. I, I, or, or keep it present. I'm not mm-hmm. really sure what the, what even what the language is to put on it, mm-hmm. but, but really finding tools and finding people that you can process this stuff mm-hmm. with. And, and, and I think that it doesn't always have to be, a, well, I mean, sometimes it probably should be under professional supervision, but even with your friends and family. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you, how do you keep these things present and, and not right. push them away? Right. Right. So when you, at that point in your life, when you first started sort of discovering these these ways back to yourself, the disconnect that happened in the first place, you know, like you said, you you know, went to the city, got into punk rock and all that kind of stuff. So it sounds like something needed to express itself at that point. It, I, I felt very shut down by the time I, you know, was a senior in high school. Right, right. Uh, I mean, I just felt beat down. Like I, I didn't understand what most of my peers cared about Mm -hmm. I I didn't really want to do it just felt so just superficial Mm -hmm. or 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 or, or it felt like you had to conform to this very strict this is is what it is to be a normal human being if you're and if you and if you color outside the lines then you're socially ostracized right which which I you know I I did have a lot of social anxiety and I probably had a fair amount of depression mm-hmm. that I really didn't know how to articulate. So there would be like periods of time, and this is how I how I experienced depression is like you know there may be periods of time where things may be fine, but I just can't like mm-hmm. it doesn't feel fine, mm-hmm. or you know I may be getting accolades or maybe getting attention that I'm not even aware of because it's just like right, and, and I'm waving my face over my hand you know, or waving my face in front of hand on my front of face to just say you know it's like there's some kind of filter between oh, yeah, yeah. between experience mm-hmm. and, and reality. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I was, you know, gosh, 17, I was just, I was just done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I kind of regret not applying myself more in school. Mm-hmm. Like, like by the time I graduated and I said this earlier, you know, I was just done and they were done with me. Like I graduated with a, with a 3.1 or two mm-hmm. and I, I just showed up. I mean, I just, you know, it's like I was able to do the work and just show up Mm -hmm. and I really regret not applying myself more. And because there's certain things now that I, I struggle to learn like Mm -hmm. math. Like I just, I mean, I've, I've struggled with it since like the eighth grade. Mm -hmm. I learned as an adult that if I apply myself, I can learn it. Right. Right. But there's so much, there's such a gap that it's not like, oh, I'm going to go learn algebra now because algebra is so 
relevant to my life. Mm -hmm. But I do realize that, you know, there are things that I shot myself in the foot later. Um, like, I don't know if I want to be a doctor, but you know, like, like getting into med school, like I, I should have had to made a decision that's in the seventh grade of like, I'm, mm. I'm, I'm going to go to med school right. and, I, and I'm going to apply myself and develop this work ethic mm -hmm. that can get me there. Mm -hmm. Where it, what I did is I developed a work ethic that was like, Oh, I'll just do what I want to do. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, I've had friends and I have a friend who's, it's a friend I walk in the park with, you know, he's just like, you know, if, if you had done that, you'd probably be a different person and you'd be in a different place. Oh yeah. Yeah. And do you, and it's like, oh, I like where I am now. Mm -hmm. So I guess, you know, I, I played my hand and now I have to live with those consequences. And that, that's something I've thought about for years, you know, different people, I think, you know, at different points in life, you prioritize different kinds of learning, whether you mean to or not, you know, sometimes it's just, you feel an internal uh, pressure or an internal guidance or whatever that's trying to open something up and for some people that you know they pour it into the conventional paths sometimes it's just you know they learn how to get good at stuff so that they can just get through and they just keep in whatever revelation comes along hey that's that's good now i know this now i know that there's so many interesting theories these days about depression like the role of depression where it comes from from an evolutionary perspective but you know pretty much the consensus is it's it's not unnatural it's not a malfunction in and of itself it's something they think that you know evolved to be protective in some way um you know sometimes that whole i'm not interested in this i'm not like you don't know what you're interested in especially as a teenager you know that frontal lobe is just going you know just crazy trying to develop and sometimes i think questions arise from that dissatisfaction arises from that and you just you don't have what you need. That's all you know. When you're, you know, 16, 17, 18, you know when you don't have it. You don't have all the tools to get there. You know, and sometimes that's just not the question that you're asking either, like the career thing. You need to be able to ignore, if you got that dissatisfaction, you need to be able to ignore that if you're going to follow that, that career track. So it seems like that dissatisfaction was just itchier. Okay, so Gary Shanling. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. You know, he died in 2016. Judd Apatow just made a, a, a documentary called The, the Zen of Jerry, Gary Shandling. Yeah, I just, I just watched that. Yeah. And so I was reading a review in the New York Times, and they talk about this scene from Freaks and Geeks mm -hmm. where the guy, like one of the guys on Freaks and Geeks saw a Gary Shandling bit. Mm -hmm. And he's like, that was the moment I realized I wasn't alone in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, that was like the mm -hmm. general gist. And... I remember like music was kind of like that for me where it was like, uh, Oh, like mm -hmm. I am not alone in the world. I didn't, right. I didn't, you know, the internet didn't exist in my household at that time, probably for the best. Well, <laughs> Facebook did, wasn't around then. So it, right, it, right. It, 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 if I was interacting with people, it would have been strangers mm -hmm. and, and it would have been in this bigger context, of, right. you know, caring about things that I cared about. But there was that sense of like, Oh, like, and that's, I think that was part of it when I saw my first punk rock show was like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, like these are people that, and, and you realize that, you know, we're social animals and we have, we carry the baggage and some of the ins and outs group stuff, whatever. But it was like, I can show up in a t-shirt and blue jeans and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Or I can show up and have a, a, a green mohawk and that's okay. Right. And I remember, like, as we're sitting there talking, like, I worked at a, a gas station when I was a junior, mm -hmm. in my junior year, and, and my coworkers were all in their early 20s, 
you know, so I would get off work and go, you know, get off work at 11 o'clock at night and go hang out with people in their 20s. Mm-hmm. And it's like they didn't care about all the shit that, like, seemed to be, like, so prevalent at school. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, well, they're having sex with so-and-so. And it's like, well, these people, you know, are adults and they have sex and they don't talk about it and they don't care. Right. <laughs> or, 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 or whatever, you know, or they listen to music. They listen to interesting music and mm-hmm. they we have interesting conversations and we can talk about stuff and mm-hmm. not gossip and not care about all these other little things. Right, right. And when you're looking, when you're searching for identity or whatever it is, which is ultimately just getting to know yourself more deeply and expressing it, um, sometimes the best thing in the world is for you to fall into a context where, you know, like at the high school level, I, I, we, we're tribal little creatures our whole lives. But at that level, you know, it's just these hormonally derived tribal sensibilities. And we, everybody around us freaks out every time we want to try something new. Like, you, you know, <clears throat> having sex, dyeing your hair, listening to weird music. It's just, you know, I hear something that's fascinating, but I'm going to get penalized for it, especially if I talk about it. Whereas you, you jump into a different context, new people, and all of a sudden it's like, I, you don't care about any of that stuff? All of a sudden, like, it lifts a taboo, which makes it easier to explore. Uh, uh, or it's like if you listen to a band that somebody doesn't like, it's like... You can talk about it. You can talk about it, and they can say, I don't like this band because of X, right. Y, and Z. It's like, it's not that you're stupid because you like that band mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. that you're weird or, you know, I'm going to stare at you because, you're, <laughs> you know, it, it's like this, like this, this nuance of like, right. oh, this is how people talk about things. Right. What, whatever. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, and I think we, there's probably some of that we probably live with in our entire lives where we're, you know, trying to unlearn things that we always, yeah, that we learned 30 years ago mm-hmm. or whatever that we don't even, we're not even aware of. Yeah. Well, it's one of the things I, it took me a long time to realize when I was, when I was younger, <clears throat> I think I, I thought I was smart because I was interested in asking those questions and, you know, turned like you were saying to music and, and reading and all this kind of stuff to try to answer these questions. And it wasn't so much because I was unusually smart. It was just because I was curious, you know, cause you can, you can mistake those two for each other. And, and curiosity is its own kind of, kind of intelligence, but in a way it's like been liberating in sort of midlife for me to realize I, it doesn't matter if I'm smart. You know, it's, it's, can I keep asking questions? Can I keep being curious? Cause I'm still, I, I still like the older I get, the more I realize the limitations that I still have, you know? I, yeah. Curiosity. Um, I, I have a, a friend that was a mentor for a while and we did, it, it's a long boring story, but we basically did medieval martial arts, mm-hmm. um, f- fighting with weapons. Right. And it, he was like, you know, your natural talent is, you know, your ability to sow chaos. <laughs> and it's like, I would say tenacity is probably like my natural talent mm-hmm. um, and curiosity. That's a good combination. Um, because it's just like, okay, you know, and maybe sometimes it, you know, it gets the best of me. But, but yeah, I, I, I agree. Like, I, I don't think I'm all that intelligent. I'm just, I just really like to answer questions and figure things out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it's funny because I was in this workshop one time and, and they were like, so what, you know, what motivates you? Mm-hmm. You know, and one person was like my kids and one person was like my spouse and one person was like my job. And it got to me and I was like curiosity mm-hmm. and, and, and I was being very serious. It's just like, you know, I mean, I, I, I love my future spouse and like, she's not what gets me out of bed every day. Right. 
I, I, I like my job. I love actually. I, I love my job. I, I love the massage, but it's not. It doesn't get me out of bed. Right. Right. Um, now, curiosity of like, what's my eleven fifteen? You know, client going to be like. Mm-hmm. You know, what's what am I? You know, what what am I going to problem? You know, how am I going to problem solve? Mm-hmm. That 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 that's really curious. You know, that really kind of keeps me motivated. And that mm-hmm, little curiosity. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem with curiosity for me is, you know, the shininess wears off. And so, how do I keep going? How do, how do I keep butting up against and, and not get a, not get need that constant satiation? You know, that that's being sated by that that newness. Right. Right. I, I mean, that can be that can be really hard. And you know, can I keep that bringing that curiosity back to the same, right, right, the same subject? And I've been doing massage twenty years. Sometimes I'd like to retire. <laughs> Understandable. I mean, uh, or, or I would like to do something. You know, I, I would like to do something different full time. Right. And and do massage because I really want to. All right. So we'll we'll come to the other options thing, but massage for twenty years. And when you started. There was no state licensure, is that correct? There, there's no state licensure. And it was still kind of, it, it, it wasn't as widely accepted as just a thing you, like, it still had some shadiness. Yeah, it still had, it still had some shadiness. It still had, I mean, the Okinawa Health Spa was still downtown and <laughs> um, <laughs> rest in peace, you know, making the sign of the right, cross. Right, right. Um, I shared an office with a, a guy who'd been doing massage for 40 years mm-hmm. who was blind and still smoked in the office. Wow. Wow. And, and so that's part of my story when I talked to massage therapists, yeah. that it's like that was that was the option for a new massage therapist like me in 1997, mm-hmm. 1998. Um, I hope that the options are better for you mm-hmm. and, you know, starting out now. Yeah. And I hope in 20 years when you're at the end of your career or, you know, in a, you know, in a, in a, in a well season in your career, that there are better options mm-hmm. than than what you had to start with. And at 20 years. If I was a nurse and I had 20 years of nursing experience, I would be heartbroken at the options available to me that are available to massage therapists with 20 years of experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's really unacceptable that, you know, there's not multiple opportunities for me to get into pain leadership roles. Right, right. Um, and, 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 and so the entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial spirit mm-hmm. is you have to create it. Mm-hmm. Not everybody can create to, you know, I mean, I, I, I think we can all play a role and maybe I could play a, a big leadership role, but you have to create it. Right. And when you right. look at all the people at the top of our profession, they've all created it. Mm-hmm. And, and there's nobody going, okay, I'm going to mentor you. Right. It's that lag between the people who are out there create, creating at that edge versus yeah, you, you hope it's like one of those classic um, rising tide lifts all boats situations, but you don't know yet. And you don't know what their success or failure is going to do for everybody yet. But meanwhile, everybody else is a few years behind. Yeah. And we all have different gifts. Yeah. And it's hard to monetize some of the gifts. Oh, yeah. And it's not all about money. Mm-hmm. But when at the bottom of the, you know, at the end of the day, it is about viability, you know, financial viability. Right. And so there's, you know, I love it and I, and I hope it can do better. Yeah, it it deserves it, the profession deserves to do better. What are the most promising things you see happening in massage as an as a practice and as an industry right now? I, I think opportunities like the one that Lexington Healing Arts is creating with um, the, their hospital based program. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I think that they're encur- I think programs like that that are encouraging us to learn how to operate in in healthcare situations are really promising. 
I, I think that there's probably going to be some good, reliable research coming in, in, in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the big ones that I see. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not interested in spa work. Right. Um, but there's people out there doing spa work that's probably pretty lucrative. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, there's nothing wrong with spa work. Sure. It's just not my thing. Right, right. Um, I, I don't know. Like, now that I'm working at the university, I think there's opportunities with, with big institutions. Mm-hmm. But it, it just, the, the time that it takes and the relationship building it takes and the value of education in our world at large and science at large mm-hmm. for, it worries me, <laughs> um, especially in the state of Kentucky. Yeah. Um, but, but I mean, the general tendency seems to be to underfund education and under underfund science. And, and I think that's the way forward. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah. Well, cause the, there, you know, it's one of the people going back, back and forth constantly these days about are these terrible times or these great times you have like authors like David, is David Pinker? Um, who's saying, you know, Oh, these are amazing times when you look at, you know, in the broad scheme of things and then other people who are like, have you seen my life? You know? Um, but like in that realm, like I worry constantly about education and about people's ability to, to have a critical engagement with things. But at the same time, like the work that people are doing who are intelligent and, you know, well-realized and are doing amazing work. Um, you know, they're, they're good people. They're like, there's a lot of really smart people doing really fascinating things. I worry about the gap. Well, and, and we, and we share a lot of the same common friends mm-hmm. that, that I think are really trying to do good work. Mm-hmm. And, and, and my, my fear is that they become cyn- you know, cynical and bitter Yeah, because the backlash, mm-hmm. I, I posted something the other day about, you know, is it ethical to do you know, to say that you do an infertility massage or massage benefits infertility. Right, right. And somebody chimed in with just like, I got massaged and I got pregnant. And (laughs) so therefore, so therefore, and I, you know, some things can't be quantified. Right. And I said, hold on. The whole question is, is it unethical to Mm -hmm. say massage benefits infertility? Mm Mm-hmm. Because, you know, like, how do we make these claims? How do, how do we draw from this? How do we draw from, you know, back to the, you know, did the massage give me the headache? Or, did it, you know, did the, right, not, right. you know, it's like, I can't ethically say what gave you the headache. You know, we need to explore all possible right. options equally, unemotionally. Right. I, whatever age they, sp- they first start teaching science to us, and I, I can't remember, I guess, like, at grade school, they start sort of, you know, putting that in there. Like, as early as possible they need to figure out how to introduce the phrase correlation does not equal causation. You know, I, I remember when I first heard just the phrase and like something clicked in my mind. I'm like, Oh, well, yeah, of course not. But I talk to people all the time who are like, well, it worked for me or it did this for me. It's like, okay. Did you ever read the demon haunted world by Carl Sagan? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, he lays out a, a really good set of stories of like how our experience can shape magical thinking. Right. Particularly with trauma mm-hmm. or particularly with things that are really emotionally charged. Mm-hmm. I can totally get it. Like right. I can totally get it. It's really, it's really hard to un- unpack it all. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and really, well, I mean, going back to the, you know, just being coming back to ourselves and like, how, how do we understand the world? Right. Right. It's, it's, re- it's really difficult. So I'd, I'd love to spend time, more time on the massage thing. You know, you've, you've done this for 20 years. You were the, president of the Kentucky chapter of the AMTA for a little bit. Um, I, I, I know this has been a, a huge part of your life. 
but you've kind of mentioned several times, um, or at least hinted at several times, directions that all of that and your previous life in general has kind of taken you. So two things, and I, I hate to give either one of them short shrift, but I want to I want to get through them. The before I die fest and the death cafes and all that kind of stuff. It seems like, you know, the, the cynical person would say, oh, well, yeah, so his mom died when he was a kid, so he's obsessed with death, and that's why he's doing this. But what you've been saying about how for you it's, it's just raised more questions about how people communicate about death, you know, partially because of your own experience with your mom, but then, you know, your grandmother, your, your uncle, everybody else. Tell us a little bit about what the festival is. So the Before I Die Fest, um, we started in 2016. Mm -hmm. um, I'd been hosting Death Cafes, which you mentioned. Uh, um, I started that in 2014. And, and, the, and, and, a that's, death, and a Death Cafe is just a space for people to talk about death and dying. I was going to say, it sounds like a really grim get-together, but... It, yeah, well, it's really enlivening. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, people approach it with this curious perspective, and the host job isn't to, isn't to force an agenda or isn't to force a topic but just to let people introduce themselves and why they're there. And it mm -hmm. becomes this humanizing thing of people talking back and forth and, and, and talking about their experience and their curiosity and really trying to figure out what it means to them. Right. And, 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 it, and you end up hearing a lot of times, oh my gosh, like I thought I was the only first person that ever felt like that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I've never been to one where people cried. The, you know, it's like, you know, it's, well, people might shed a tear, but it's not like this boohoo, you know, people right. leave feeling depressed. So that, what is that? Um, in 2016, I, I hosted the community conversation. What would make Louisville the model city to live fully until death? You know, mm -hmm. re really, because I, I, I've it's been a longtime hospice volunteer and having my experience, I see that, you know, when people die, like there's all of this care that goes up to the death. Mm -hmm. And then there's all of this care on the other side for the bereaved. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's this huge gap. There's, mm -hmm. there's a gap going into it. There's a gap on the other side. You know, what would it, what would it, what would a, a model community look like that could care for, care for the dying mm -hmm. and then care for the bereaved mm -hmm. and create something, a, a new relationship with, with, with mortality. Mm -hmm. And so we hosted a meeting and there was, there was like two people that helped me kind of pull the meeting together and we just started hosting like these round table discussions where people would come and like just play with the question mm -hmm. and out of the first or second meeting the before I die fest kind of started coming together with myself and Deborah Tuggle and Kel McBride Kel really pushed us Deb, Deb and I were thinking oh we'll do this in a year and Kel was like no let's do it this fall mm -hmm. so we put together 20 between May and October we put together 22 events around death and dying and we reached 700 people in the community. That's pretty amazing. And the the thing was, we knew that people aren't just going to come fill out an advanced directive. Right. Because I've done that. I mean, I've, I've hosted events and you put in months of, of prep and five people show up. Right, right. But what if we showed a movie? Or what mm -hmm. if we had an author talk? Mm -hmm. Or what if we did an art show? Would people come? Mm -hmm. And would people talk about it? And when people talk about death, because, mm -hmm. because what will happen is you say, well, I want to change how our community talks about death and dying. Mm -hmm. And people just look at you like, <laughs> and then what they'll say yeah. is nobody wants to talk about that. Mm -hmm. And then 
they'll talk about it for the next 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so how do you create events mm -hmm. where people will engage in the topic and see themselves in the story? Right. And, and that's what we've been really trying to do is, is try to partner and collaborate with different groups in the, in the community that, you know, that, that can pr pr bring forward people or bring forward ideas that people will interact with and, and react to. Mm -hmm. And last year in 2017, we had our second one. We hosted 10, meet, 10, 10 events. Mm -hmm. So it was a sm smaller number of events. It was much more manageable. Mm -hmm. And we reached 400 people. Um, still pretty good. Still pretty good. We, 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 we partnered with the Bunbury Theater to do Tuesdays with Maury, mm -hmm. which is, it was a really well done play. Mm -hmm. And we hosted community conversations afterwards and people would stay and talk about it. Mm -hmm. And it's really, what, what happens is when people kind of start letting their guard down, they start talking and they start, and, and the hope, and I don't know how you measure this, but the hope is as people start talking about this, they start finding ways into the conversation. Right. Um, and, and part of my experience with my grandmother is we had no conversations about her healthcare part. Mm -hmm. We had conversations about where the will was and where the deed of the house was and mm -hmm. where her checkbook was. And then I could write checks, right. which was excellent information to have. Oh, yeah. Um, in the five weeks that, it, you know, as she died, I was able to pay her electric bill because I knew I could write checks and I knew where the checkbook was. Right. Important. In, in, important things. But as I'm making healthcare decisions, I knew she was do not resuscitate. Mm -hmm. But at 25, I didn't know what that meant. Mm -hmm. And so when I had to make the decision of whether or not she got surgery, I brought it up. I was like, you know, well, I, knew she, I know she's do not resuscitate. And so, the, you know, the, the physician had to explain to me what that meant. Mm -hmm. No, mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that we don't operate. It means that if she dies on the table, we let her have a natural death. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so going through this whole process, I mean, for me, and most people aren't going to be 25, but I can guarantee you there's people out there that are 50 that are having to care for their mom and dad that are in the same boat. Right, right. Um, they, they might be given, and so I talk about this a lot in my story with, with physicians is, you know, people didn't take, it, it took them a little while to take me seriously because I was so young. Right. And so I know that most adults going in, into this aren't going to have that issue, you know, aren't going to have that same kind of issue, but they, they're still going to have the power differential of, of having to talk to a doctor, talk, right. talk, 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 right. talk to a surgeon, have to be assertive, mm -hmm. um, all of these different things, but then also be being caring for this person who can't care for themselves anymore and who's changing. Mm -hmm. um, Stephen Jenkinson, the author of Die Wise, he's a death and dying expert, um, talks about it being like a love affair in, avert, in reverse. Mm -hmm. Think about a love affair you know, all the things that you love about this person, you know, their sense of humor, you know, the way they smile, the way they do whatever, mm -hmm. you know, you're this whole history that you have together is, as, as they go through the dying process, sometimes all that's being, all that's being taken yeah. away. And so you're still having to come back to this person and care for them and figure out what's what, and, and also take care of yourself. Yeah. And, and so all of these things, you know, how do we present programming that is, broad enough but also specific i mean it's a it's a it's a challenge and we should probably at some point just focus on every year focus on one topic mm -hmm. you know this year we're going to focus on preparation mm -hmm. you know next year we're going to focus on care mm -hmm. the next year we're going to focus on grief mm -hmm. i mean that and so you take a deep dive right and it becomes a long-term project 
as opposed to just trying to pack everything into a one year each year and how do you make it i mean i've never so that was when you know you talked about me being president mm-hmm. all this started evolving around the time that i was president mm-hmm. and being president of the chapter started giving me sort of a little bit more confidence to think that i can manage events and i can do projects sure because i didn't have that experience before and so it gave me some experience it gave me some a little bit of confidence but i've still never done what i'm doing now mm-hmm. and so i'm having to kind of work on the jet as it's in flight <laughs> <laughs> right right um and, and maybe there's not a, maybe that's the way most small startups feel mm-hmm. and i'm going to just use the word startup sure, because it sure. seems it seems to fit it seems to fit that you know we're kind of in that in that beginning phase and we're right. and we're starting to plan for this year 2018 and my hope is that it gets a little more condensed and a little more refined mm-hmm. um, and that, you know, we're able to continue it and make it, make it viable. Yeah. I, I, again, hate to give anything short shrift, but I wanted to touch on the work that you're doing with UofL now um, really quickly. Uh, what is it and how did that sort of dovetail off what you were doing? So... I had approached my current uh, boss at the Institute for Sustainable Health and Optimal Aging back in 2016. And I said, we're doing these events on death and dying. She's a geriatrician and palliative care expert. Mm. Would you like to be involved? And she just kind of looked at me like, I don't get it. Like, you know, she didn't say that, but that was kind of like my, my sense. Right. And she came to an event and she was, and I, and I could see it. Like I could see the look on her face. Like, oh, I get it. Like you're bringing together resources. You're bringing together these experts, and people are talking about this. Mm-hmm. And so we started working together the following winter on. So you know what a living will is, mm-hmm. right? Or an advanced directive. Sure. So a living will or an advanced directive is a, is a legal document that basically states if I cannot make healthcare decisions for myself, this is the person that I want to do it. And these are like the options that I want them to consider. Mm -hmm. And and it's very simple. Mm -hmm. There's a medical order that was signed into state law in 2015 called most a medical order for scope of treatment. Mm -hmm. How it differs from a living will is it's signed by a doctor and it's very nuanced. So it gets really into the minutia of the level of care. Mm -hmm. It's for people who are really sick, Mm -hmm. people that have advanced illness, um, the catchphrase is wouldn't be surprised if they died within a year. Um, right. so it's, it's for people who are very sick. Right. right. And the difference is because it's a medical order, it should ideally be portable across all healthcare settings and any healthcare professional who picks it up should recognize it. Mm-hmm. There's not education or implementation of it. So in 2016, we started, we, a coalition formed. And actually, I was at the first meeting. So I was at the first meeting of the coalition. And so over the next six months, was that 2016? No, it was 2017. Sorry, like my, mm. my, my timeline. But anyhow, it was last year. It was last January in 2017. And in the first six months, it was just kind of getting regular meetings going. Well, in the spring, UofL approached me and said, we want to hire somebody, you know, for very part time to help coordinate this. Mm-hmm. Would you be interested? And, and what I said was, I would like to, the opportunity to refuse. So let, so we let, let's, we had an interview. Mm-hmm. And so the, I, UofL hired me last summer 
I'm their, I'm their most, their medical order for scope of treatment, um, and palliative care liaison. And because it's, it's so part-time right now, I've only focused on most, mm -hmm. but basically we're, we've been developing, we, we meet bi-monthly mm -hmm. um, to talk about how do we educate and implement this program. Mm -hmm. And so we've met with a couple of local hospitals, we've formed you know, part of the statewide coalition to basically do education and implementation. Mm -hmm. The hope is that it evolves into full-time work, and we're, we're implementing these conversations, these advanced care planning conversations, as part of healthcare, mm -hmm. and we're, we're, we're including them as part of goals of care conversations. So basically, we're getting fish, physicians and the public to really have honest conversations about where somebody's health status is mm -hmm. and what's a reasonable approach. So, you know, do you have a cold that you can get cured of? Or do you have advanced cancer and do we need to really explore palliative or hospice care? Mm -hmm. and, and really helping people have those, those honest conversations and then documenting them into actionable medical orders or mm -hmm. actionable advanced care plans. So really starting to change the conversation both within institutions and in the community mm -hmm. about where, you know, where people's health is and how, 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 do we, how do we create conversations both professionally and interpersonally around, mm -hmm. around those, those issues. So I'm, I'm really curious and, and, I'm, and I'm really th hopeful that we're able to start to develop some modules and some, so right now we're just doing some very basic education mm -hmm. about the form. Mm -hmm. What I'm hoping is that uh, as time goes on, we're able to develop some, some more robust modules that where we're helping institutions institute this into their policies and procedures and creating a culture where we talk about this. Mm -hmm. There was a study that came out last year and I'm spacing on where it's from, it doesn't matter. Anyhow, 5% of the people, 178 people with terminal cancer, 5% mm -hmm. of the people understood their diagnosis and their prognosis. 5% of the people could really wow. like, like give back, you know, what their diagnosis was. Mm -hmm. You know, I have stage four lung cancer mm -hmm. or, or whatever that's mm -hmm. metastasized mm -hmm. and that I'm have six months or less to live or, or whatever mm -hmm. that is. And so 5% out of 178. I, I, I hope that we can do a little better than that. And, and, and I hope that we can be having honest conversations. Right. That, and, 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 the, and the pushback you get is, well, what, what about their hope? And I, I, I don't ever want to squelch that desire to live. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when people are getting into hospice care three days before they die and they're receiving chemotherapy, right before they die. Right. I mean, it's right. It, it, there's a certain disconnect there and, mm -hmm. dis and dishonesty there that is just really, gosh, it, it leads to enormous suffering. Mm -hmm. So uh, can a conversation change that? I, I, I don't know if it, if it totally can, but I think that that's how you get it started. And, and so the hope is that we're going to start doing more outreach. We're, um, in, in April, April's, um, April 16th is National Healthcare Decisions Day. Mm. So I'm, I'm collaborating with um, Hospice Health and Kentucky One Health to do a series of events 
And so what I'm hoping is that we'll eventually start going back to that, that original question, what would make Louisville the model city to live fully? Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to revise what I said a little bit earlier. Um, the original question is what would make Louisville the model city to live fully into death? Mm -hmm. And I've, I've tweaked it a little bit until death because when you say into death, people don't really know what that means. Right, right. But when you've sat with somebody who dies, you realize that they're alive up until, and this sounds kind of cliche, but they're alive up until the point that they're not. Right, right. And it's an into process. Mm -hmm. Unless you die suddenly from some kind of traumatic event or a right, health right, crisis. Right. Like if you go through the natural dying process, like you, people say pass away. Mm-hmm. I mean, you literally, like, you kind of just fade out. Right, right. And so how do you, if, if that's the course that most people take, 90% of people die from an illness they're aware of, mm -hmm. which means only 10% of deaths are due to traumatic events right, or right. healthcare crisis or murders or things like that. So 90% of people are going to have a dying process from an illness, which means that they're going to pass. They are going to die. You know, they are going to fade into death. Mm -hmm. So what would it look like if we lived in a community where that was done well? Mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, that's, I mean, that's kind of like the question that, that I walk around with. Right. And, and, and I think it has great utility and I think it also has something where we, we don't want to face it. Mm -hmm. Um, well, we can put that off and it's like, well, m maybe. Yeah. It's one of those fundamental things. I mean, again, like you said, not to overstate the obvious. Um, I can't think of the author, but, you know, the fear of death. Oh, denial of death? Denial of death. Denial yeah, of death. Er Ernest Becker. Becker, yeah. right. Yeah. It defines most of what we are. So trying to get people to open up to that, you know, you're, you're sort of threatening, and I, I use that term loosely, but you're threatening everything we kind of think about ourselves, but threaten it with the option of opening things up. You know, it sounds like... That's the hope. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and at, last year at the end of the Before I Die Fest, I basically stood in front of the audience and I said, you know, is anybody leaving here? We spent from 930 in the morning to 430 mm -hmm. afternoon looking at different aspects of our mortality and how do we plan for it? Mm -hmm. Does anybody in here feel depressed? And no. nobody raised their hand. And I was like, well, so go out and tell people you talked about death and dying and it didn't kill you. <laughs> you know it's a bad it's, it's, I'm never going to pass up a bad a, a good bad pun nice nice alright I know you need to get out of here yeah um, we'll talk about more of this stuff at some point because there's just this like we were talking about before it opens up good questions uh, so many questions come out of this um, but thanks for coming in at least getting this started a lot yeah. of conversations getting started yeah th th thank you and thanks and good luck with everything <laughs> we'll see how it goes thanks Justin alright